And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Daniel Hornsby to the program today. Daniel earned his MFA from the University of Michigan and a Master's in Theological Studies from Harvard Divinity School. His stories and essays have appeared in the Los Angeles Review of Books, Electric Literature, The Missouri Review, and Joyland. Today we'll be talking about his debut novel, Via Negativa, which is published by Knopf. Dan, Via Negativa opens with a first-person narrator. He's pulling his car over to bring comfort to a wounded animal. What's happened? I went to Catholic school growing up in Muncie, Indiana, where you know a lot of the kind of backstory in this book takes place. The church we went to is called St. Francis, and I was always taken with the statues of Francis with like a deer, sparrows, a wolf. And I've always found you know those kinds of images compelling. And so in this case, I wanted to have him kind of have to reckon with this mysterious animal, but also deal with it, you know, not just in a, a kind of like life of the saints kind of way. Really, like, how would you heal this animal if you didn't have, you know, thaumaturgical powers or whatever? You know, if you were trying to heal it in your car, like, how would you set its leg? How would you deal with it in that confined space? So our narrator, who is a retired priest, he takes pity on this poor creature and picks it up. It becomes his companion and a little window into, you know, you can kind of see, you know, the ways in which he likens himself to someone like Francis or the Desert Fathers of third century, fourth century Egypt, who were, you know, these Christian monks who lived in isolation, sometimes in communities too. And there are a lot of stories of them, you know, healing jackals and wolves and hyenas and things like that. So, you know, he likens himself to those saints and those monks and things. I think he set this kind of impossible task for himself, hoping he can kind of get closer to their experience. He is wanting to have kind of these mystical experiences, but, yeah. you know, the world of scatology and other <laughs> earthly happenings just keep invading upon him. I think it's both his strength and his weakness in a lot of ways. He's always looking for that kind of, you know, the mystical reality beyond the mundane or the kind of mystical reality in the mundane. Someone who has chased visions, you know, since he was a teenager growing up in the 60s, experimenting a little bit with drugs, but also, you know, imageless prayer, some older Christian prayer traditions. In a way, it's a saving grace. It allows him to survive in a culture that's sometimes hostile to him, but it also makes him detach in ways. I come down a little harder on if I'm judging him. The animal in question is a coyote. And in Native American folk tradition, the coyote is, is a trickster figure. So does he play the same role in your book? You know, I don't think of him quite in those terms. I see him more as a way in for the non-human world to kind of leak into this story. You know, we're creatures that kind of map our realities in language, right? Which is something a novel, you know, participates in. But animals, they don't do that in the same way, at least, as far as we know. And so having the coyote allows me to stir the mystery a little bit. Yeah, he gets to kind of offset the kind of like, you know, little maze of language that Dan sets up for us as readers or for me as a writer. He pushes Dan outside of his, his comfort zone, makes him talk to other people. You know, and I believe just that like animals are, and people too, are so fundamentally mysterious. And so the coyote is a way to kind of invite the mystery into the car. Because with domesticated animals, especially pets, in some ways we tend to anthropomorphize them. And yes, yes. wild animals are just so unknowable, it seems, at times. 
Yeah, I agree. And yet, even the domesticated ones, but at least, you know, we've, as far as dogs go, you know, we have thousands of years of history with them, kind of shaping them as a living technology, even though I wouldn't describe any animal as a technology, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but we wielded them as such, you can say. But yeah, I mean, one thing that's interesting to me about coyotes, especially, is that, you know, a lot of coyotes, if you just, you know, kind of pulled the like canid equivalent of 23andMe on them, they're going to have some wolf DNA. They're going to have some domesticated dog DNA. And then about half, maybe a little bit more, will be coyote. So they exist in this kind of in-between species place, too. And that fascinates me, that there are these traces of other animals and that they're not quite either of those things. They're not 100% coyote, whatever that means. They themselves are liminal. Yes, exactly. And they slip between, you know, the harsh realities of wolfdom and the tame life of a dog. You know, in a lot of places in this country, since wolves have been hunted to extinction, they fulfill that ecological niche, too. He names the coyote Bede. Who is his namesake? That comes from this medieval English historian and saint, the Venerable Bede. He has this passage. He describes life, the life of a person, as that of a sparrow at night coming from, you know, the kind of great cold of the outdoors through the door of a feasting hall where, you know, there are all these retainers and servants and lords dining. There's, you know, bright light and food on the table. And then you fly right out back into this other darkness, which I think just is so beautiful. <laughs> you know, the kind of embarrassment of riches of life and the mystery on either side of it. Now, if you were to be canonized, what kind of adjective would follow Dan? Dan the... <laughs> Gosh, yeah, that's that's a, a realm of fiction maybe beyond my imagining. <laughs> I, I would, it's, there are things that I would hope for, you know, like peaceful maybe, or compassionate or kind, I think would be things that I would put on for Dan the priest and Dan me. <laughs> 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 Those are the aspirations, and I, you know, that's part of the fun of this character is he's someone older than me by a lot, and by giving him kind of my name, for one thing, it just kind of matches his generation, right? There are probably one out of four Irish Catholic priests of his generation are named Dan, probably another quarter are named Mike. But it also lets me kind of relate to him in a different way. I don't really see him as that much older. I can kind of see a continuity between us. So the concept of via negativa is kind of defining something by what it is not. So right. since you two share names, how is he not you? I mean, for one thing, he is a 70-year-old priest <laughs> who has had to negotiate this life. I guess for me, it's like part of even writing this, it was for me to kind of figure out the limits of this kind of mystical fetishism that has drawn me, which is prayer, but also kind of like looking for something numinous in everyday life. As more time passes, you know, you can see the limitations of that. If you live purely a contemplative life, you are ignoring the suffering of others sometimes. You know, if, you, if there's no action at all, if you're just kind of praying in a vacuum or meditating in a vacuum, you know, you're complicit with some things. You're complicit with other people's suffering and pain and the systems that perpetuate that. And for me, it's like, you know, I went to divinity school and you know, received a master's in theological studies. I was really interested in the kind of spiritual creativity of 
Yeah, the desert fathers and mothers, like who I've mentioned already, people in the 13th century, there's this explosion of new ways of thinking about religious life that gives us the Dominicans, the Franciscans, and a bunch of women who were you know, starting these kind of reading groups and lay organizations, the Beguines. And so Dan allowed me to kind of work out the limits of that a little bit. And I imagine someone who has kind of chased this their whole life and there are costs to that. And, you know, some of those costs are being complicit with the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church, which he was, you know, willfully ignorant of or ignorant of. It was hard for him to see that because he was using kind of the Via Negativa and a larger kind of mystical project as an escape. Would writing a long-form piece of fiction be similar to retreating away and doing contemplative study? Yeah, definitely. And so I think there is a question for all artists, right? Like, you make your stuff, but that you also have a full life as a person. You have responsibilities that aren't just your art. I mean, I think that's true of all of us with whatever we do. If you're a musician, if you're a bartender, if you're an adjunct instructor, if you're a librarian, like we have other ethical responsibilities. Like writing is definitely a big part of my life. It's a huge part of my life and helps me see the world, but it also helps me like interact with people and figure out like what my ethical obligations are to other people that are in my community, in my family, in my world, or the world that I'm, I'm a part of. A famous thinker that you have in the story comes from that early African tradition is origin of Alexandria. And he tried very hard to kind of deprive himself of the temptations of the world. Yeah, he's an interesting figure because he, you know, you'll see images of him where he's preaching to this congregation and everyone in the crowd has a halo, right? It's this kind of imagined little communion of saints where you'll see like St. Ambrose and Augustine. Everyone has a halo except him. But he's really given us this kind of layered reading of scripture that is just part of like Christian exegesis that's so basic and fundamental that there could be these layered meanings to text and they relate to, you know, there's the text itself, the story, and then there are these kind of metaphorical relationships between, say, God and us, or, you know, you look at the Old Testament, and there's a kind of metaphorical reading that involves, like, Jesus in that. So he's this hugely influential figure, but he's not sainted. But it's hard to imagine Christianity now without his influence. Just in basic practice, I mean, the kind of stuff that people do in Bible studies all the time, it's impossible without his kind of creativity. Our narrator isn't on a pilgrimage, but he's not exactly not on one either. Right. When I started writing this book, I was reading this 19th century text. It's called The Way of a Pilgrim. It's by an anonymous Russian author who kind of travels around and talks to people. Like J.D. Salinger references it, this kind of love prayer that you can kind of repeat. It comes from that. I'm interested in kind of like exploring the road novel and pilgrimage, but in more theological terms. You know, the via negativa it means the negative way or the negative road. It's kind of a play on this idea of pilgrimage. He's also, you quickly learn, maybe on a path of revenge, thinking about a friend of his who he, you know, later finds out some terrible things that have been done to him and hoping to avenge that. This is in many ways a pilgrimage. But you kind of learn that there's something else going on, that some of the things that maybe seem like settled backstory have some stakes on this road trip he's taking. And just a hook 
any potential readers, there is a little custom-made Derringer he picks up in Kansas that he might use on somebody from his past once he gets to the West Coast or the American West. He becomes a pistol-packing padre. And there are a lot of novels that kind of do some similar things that I, I'm referencing a little bit, like uh, Willa Cather's Death Comes to the Archbishop. You know, that's set long before our time. And this is kind of squarely in recent years. You know, I really didn't think about it until I read this book, although it's pretty obvious that the road story, the road movie, the road novel goes back yeah. to the Bible. And, uh, yeah, of course, goes sure. to, the, uh, to Moses leading the, uh, the Israelites out. In your religious studies, are there any other great road traditions and uh, any other religions that you ran across? I think a lot about just medieval pilgrimage practice and what that could look like. For some people, that was the only way you would ever really get to travel any significant distance was as a pilgrim. You had people who would wear chains, who would sleep on the shrines of certain saints, you know, to be healed of their, their ailments. I like the way that there's something about kind of like relics that line up interestingly for me with like kind of the corny post-war American road trips where people get their souvenirs, where they want to see these wild roadside attractions. I lived in Kansas for a while and you could see all of these little spots that would pop up that were clearly just there to draw tourists once the highways were built. There's a giant concrete prairie dog, for instance, and you're like, someone just made a prairie dog out of concrete. And they're like, it's the world's largest concrete prairie <laughs> dog. To just instill a little bit of wonder and significance to, you know, land that seems kind of empty. The old maps of America did call the Great Plains the, the Great American Desert, so our priest is doing the same as the, the Desert Fathers. Exactly. He thinks of his journey in those terms, too. He very much sees himself as at least aspiring towards what these people achieved in isolation out in the deserts of Egypt. And this is more of a, a peregrination than a point A to point B trip. Right. He says he's in the opposite of a rush. And so he kind of takes any excuse he can to not go where he's going. And so that results in some strange episodes, including one with a, a so-called hole to hell in Kansas, a little tourist trap. With the Via Negativa, right, he's avoiding what's most important to him. He's trying to work around it and dodge it if he can. And so he takes some stops that someone in a hurry would never take. It seems it's more procrastination than any search for enlightenment at times. Right. He really is fond of this via negativa, right? So he wants to avoid language when he can, whenever he can. He thinks it cheapens things. But that's also made him ignore or allowed him to kind of avoid articulating things that he probably should have said. It makes him avoid standing up when he, he should have stood up for something. Especially with his friend Paul, who is, you know, as far as the story goes, he becomes increasingly important. A friend that he knew when he was in a minor seminary, which is like a seminary for people around kind of high school age. They were much more popular back in the 50s and 60s. He meets this boy, they both become priests, and they have this deep friendship that is kind of based around these mystical practices, but also, you know, a kind of silence that becomes more and more painful with time. What is it like to write a character who has antipathy toward your stock and trade with words? You know, it helped me kind of wrestle with something because I love to write. I like to make up stories. But sometimes the more you do that, the more you kind of realize the limitations of that. And so he allowed me to explore that tension a little bit 
between, they call it apophasis, which is like a, another term for like the via negativa, the, the negative way, and images and words. And so in a lot of ways, it's like, I know it's kind of contradictory. There's kind of a paradox there that this priest is telling you his story, but he also will shy away from language when he can. But I think that adds a layer and a little mystery to him. At one point, the father says there are a number of different types of priests. What kind of priest would Father Dan consider himself? So this is early in the book. He gives a kind of catalog of all these kinds of archetypal American priests. And if you, you know, grew up Catholic or kind of Catholic adjacent, you might recognize some of them. You know, the kind of golfing priests and tennis playing priests and alcoholic priests and sad priests and arty priests. He's definitely one of the artier meditating species of uh, what would that be, Pater Americanus or whatever the <laughs> you know the American priest species is, but he's left leaning and progressive in his politics to a certain extent. He's a pastor, spent most of his life as a priest as a pastor in Muncie, Indiana, which is where I grew up. No coincidence there. But someone who would have been much more comfortable, you know, serving a community in say, Boston or somewhere in California or something like that, in a more like liberal Catholic environment. So there's a lot of pushback for him with his art projects that he tries to push on his congregation to even some social justice stuff that he attempts. But yeah, I would say he's kind of a Merton-esque meditating priest. I think that's what he says, how he identifies. Have you had any priest read the novel before it was published to, to give you insights? I have not. You know, I spent a lot of time around these kinds of guys growing up. I went to a, a very strict Catholic school. We went to Mass every day in Muncie, Indiana. So I've been able to kind of see them firsthand. And, you know, I have this friend, too, so I have some anecdotes from him. I have some stories from some of my professors at HDS who, you know, were pastors. One was an uh, Episcopal priest. The other is a pastor. So there are little stories and things, little nods to them and a little homage here and there to them kind of scattered throughout. So I've been able to observe these people, but I didn't have what I, I that would be a little intimidating for me, I think. <laughs> I'm sure there will be an angry priest who will uh, write me a sternly worded letter and I will feel like I'm back in Catholic school. But there might be a couple that go, yeah, okay, there's some truth in there too. I hope so. I spent a lot of time trying to imagine what it was like. And, you know, also just reading, you know, writings of people who were priests and journalism, things like that, doing some research to try to get the details right and the timeline down. Before he retired, Father Dan had a kind of contentious relationship with his bishop. Why did a funeral and a wake for some royalty get him in so much trouble? Yeah, so this is actually a story that was told to me by our pastor in Indiana when I was growing up. So this is one of those things that is lifted in some ways and dialed up in others. But he did have like the king of the Romani in Indiana. He had died and his son approaches our father Dan and asks if they can hold the wake in the sanctuary space. So they kind of arrange for it to be done in the parish hall, which is kind of under the main sanctuary, for three days and nights. And so this is what this priest had, had told me, and I looked it up to kind of verify. But, you know, whatever is eaten, whatever is consumed kind of under the same roof as the body would, you know, be used by the king in the afterlife. So there's a kind of feasting tradition. And, you know, for Dan, it's like he really wants to help people who are marginalized or he wants to help any way he can. 
and causes him to butt heads with this bishop. It happens again and again, slowly whittling Dan's will down, so that by the time he retires, he's more or less given up on a lot of these projects and turns inward, you know, and turns towards pursuing mystical experiences instead of maybe helping people the way he should. There's also some royalty and nobility that keep him company on his trip, that of Lord and Prince. Yeah, so one thing is, it's like with an older narrator... I didn't want him to be so like wrapped up in nostalgia. Like, you know, it's like any of us, we kind of pick up hobbies and habits as we get older. We're not just formed by, you know, something you liked when you were 15 or 16. So it's not just that he's like, oh, I like the Beatles. But, you know, in the 80s, he got into Prince, who, you know, there is a kind of theology to Prince. He says, and I would die for you. You know, I'm not a woman. I'm not a man. I'm something you can't understand. And Prince knows what he's doing. You know, he he became more religious later in life, but even around the time of Purple Rain, 1999, he has a, a kind of deep spiritual existence. And he likes to play with those images and symbols. So that was something that I knew would appeal to my Dan. It's something that appeals to me. And I knew it could be something that he, you know, if he heard a Prince song, you know, in the supermarket or on the radio in the 80s, he would like it. You know, another thing is just that, like, there's something about the feeling of the song Purple Rain. I never meant to cause you any sorrow. I never meant to cause you any pain. The kind of true regret that haunts him when he thinks about his closest friend, Paul. And it just made sense to me that he would be held in place kind of by that. You know, in the beginning of Purple Rain, he's he's talking about the afterlife. And he talks, you know, he sounds almost like a pastor kind of. Yeah, at the beginning of Let's Go Crazy, there's kind of like a, an invocation there. The beginning of the album, exactly. I kind of like that. <laughs> that Prince kind of becomes a little uh, something of a pastor, too. I could identify with Father Dan because I have had a lonely mill in Effingham, Illinois, as well. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah, just if you're going to Chicago from here, you're probably yeah. going to stop in Effingham and have a very bland meal. <laughs> yeah, that's going to happen. You're probably going to the Cracker Barrel. You know, that's a, that was a drive we made a lot when I was younger. We, uh, I grew up in Muncie, Indiana, and then my family moved to Kansas. And so you can kind of see, you know, like his route definitely overlaps with some of the routes in my own life. So we would pass that giant kind of garage door cross outside of Effingham. And it's just, it's incredibly bizarre. <laughs> you know, just the scale of it, you can see that the quality of light kind of shifts between you and it. And it's almost like a mountain or something. And I always thought that was just so American. <laughs> it's not a beautiful thing. It's just an assertion of Christian power. And he kind of keeps tracks of these symbols as he drives. I know outside of Joplin, Missouri, there's a, a big cross beside a, a highway. And of course, the Christ of the Ozarks in uh, Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Right. And you know, Dan is repulsed by these. It makes sense. You think like, Jesus wouldn't look like a, a blonde, blue-eyed white guy. These imaginings are so limiting. They don't really bring him or anyone else much closer to like those kinds of truths or ideas. They're limited. And I mean, he has a lot of frustration with that. He kind of sees them almost as idols because they just represent something else. Yeah, there was a quote from later on in the book. Everyone in the mural, Jesus, Mary, Ignatius, was sickly pale in European dress. It was a mirror for the priest to admire themselves in. This is why I'd always kept my worship space spare. You wind up making God in your own image and forget to look for him anywhere else. Right. And I just thought that was lovely. Oh, thank you. I mean, especially you see it in the kind of missionary art 
where it's a really assertion of of power, you know. It's not about looking for the divine in other people. It's it's about making it look like you. That's been a part of the kind of the racist projects of the ugliest chapters of of Christian history and American history. Earlier, you mentioned the uh, roadside attractions kind of being like stops on a pilgrimage trail. What was his attraction to the bottomless pit in Kansas? Yeah, I think he, he likes that it's an absence. It's a landmark, not because something is there, but because something isn't there. You know, he's, he's driving across Kansas fairly slowly. But, you know, you think like of all of the things that could draw him, that would be the one he would stop for would be just a little kind of taste of infinity. And I think his God is marked by a kind of infinite mystery and a kind of absence, a kind of like silence to sit with. Not like a mystery to solve, but one to kind of sit inside or beside. What was that old radio show? It was like an AM show and it would have like weird guys calling in and be like, I saw. Was it Art Bell? Uh, Yeah, Art Bell. Thank you. You know, I would catch snippets of that, and my friends who grew up in rural Kansas loved that when they were kids. There was this Mel's Hole to Hell, I think was what it was called, but there was a famous bottomless pit. I think it was actually in Washington, so I just transplanted it to Kansas, but I thought that would be it for someone like Dan. He would go crazy for that, even though in the end, it's fairly puny. (laughs) It did make me think of Stull, Kansas, though. Are you familiar with Stull? I I am not. Stull is close to Lawrence and it's supposedly one of the seven portals to hell on earth. Okay. Yeah. 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 I I have heard heard of that. Okay. And they have a lot of problem with morons going by trying to, to access the the fiery depths. (laughs) I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, that's the funny thing about Kansas. It's like, it is fairly puritanical in a, a lot of ways, but there's also the kind of like equal and opposite reaction to that. And so you have like pretty hardcore punks and, metal bands and things like that that have come out of there, especially around Lawrence, because it is one of the artier hubs in the state. Are you familiar with the writer? I think he's down at Auburn now, Andrew Malin Millward. No, I'm not. He wrote a book of short stories a few years ago. He's from around the Lawrence area. All the short stories are set in different parts of important periods of Kansas's history. Oh, that's great. I think it's called I Was a Revolutionary. It talks about the, uh, the crazy doctor who... Inge- oh yeah, injected with goat a, testicles. With a goat testicles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a truly wild one. Really fascinating book. If you have spare time and you're looking for something okay, to read, I will out. check that if you, out. If you're that a sounds... Kansas person, that that would be uh, up your alley. That sounds directly up my alley. Yeah, my, I went to Kansas State for my undergrad. One of my teachers there is his name's uh, Daniel Hoyt. So another Dan to just muddy the water here. <laughs> but he wrote this really great book called "This Book Is Not for You." And the narrator is a, is a Lawrence, Kansas punk. I mean, it's just, it's an excellent book and it really captures kind of like the crustiness of punks in a kind of puritanical place. You know, it's like the crust punks of Salt Lake City are the crustiest of punks because they're surrounded by a fairly squeaky clean culture. You know, it's, it's like more extreme. <laughs> and some of that is true for Kansas, I think, too. There's a venue in Lawrence, like the Outhouse or something like that. Hmm. And there's a a famous kind of punk alternative rock venue back in the the 80s and 90s. I'm trying to think. It's like a cinder block place just out on the outskirts of town. Oh, that's cool. I love that. Yeah, we used to play there when when I was in bands in college. Lawrence was kind of like the spot. 
So it's only at this point when he goes to this attraction and meets the Martin family in Kansas, in this bottomless pit, that we learn his name. So it's like over 90 pages in the book that we learn his name is Dan. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like, you don't say your name too often, right? Other people call you. It's fun to withhold that. Um, and, you know, the same thing happens with Bede, right? Like that he has to kind of name Bede after a certain point. For me, it's a Terminator 2 problem where... You know, if you just watch Terminator 2 Cold, you don't know that Arnold is uh is good for a while. It's 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 like, oh, he's he's good. Wow, okay, that's surprising. You think maybe the other guy, the liquid guy, <laughs> Robert Patrick, yeah, might be sent back to protect our little revolutionary. But as far as like describing that you look at the book, you look at the back and you're like, "Oh, he's a priest." Oh. But you know, it's it's still a few pages before you even learn that he is a priest you know someone has to call him father and then you kind of you see that i think that's a little more fun (laughs) but then when you're selling a book or you're promoting a book you you just have to lay it out like but this is the guy we're dealing with he's a priest at that point he said his name i wasn't even sure if he was telling the truth yeah he does kind of lie (laughs) he likes to withhold and this really gets to the heart of the book for me is that like he is somebody who has really fetishized this via negativa and so he will dodge language. He will avoid it for as long as he can. And it allows him to avoid accountability. And he comes into a realization of that only, I think, halfway through the book or maybe a little later. By dodging words like this, he's avoided talking about things that should be said, you know, avoided inquiring about his closest friend's pain. I was thinking that uh, kind of the via negativa approach that maybe sculpture is like that in the art world that you're just taking stuff away and and uh, you're, like that. you're rejecting parts of the the stone or or what to, like carving sculpture yeah i mean there was a time where visual art was really giving me a sense of some of that kind of like access to something that might be a little more mystical so like i was working as a security guard at the nelson atkins yep, exactly. i love that museum it's a beautiful museum. You know, working as a security guard is not always the most stimulating job. <laughs> Where you're sta- I would stand, you know, kind of work four days on. And sometimes it would put you in front of the same two or three paintings for eight hours at a time, four days in a row. And so you really, like, get to know some of the paintings and sometimes hate some of the paintings. Like, <laughs> you wouldn't think, like, a traveling Rembrandt could inspire, like, boredom <laughs> or despair but there was one that definitely did for me. But there were some paintings that, like, they really felt like windows into some of the stuff I try to get out in the book. One of the kind of later, darker, muddier Rothko's is, is there in the Abstract Expressionist Gallery. Mm-hmm. There's a beautiful William Baziotti's painting that is it's just like the texture is so rich. It's got these kind of like a crescent moon-like form, little threads it's just beautiful and you stare at it long enough and you feel like it is this window kind of past the screen of day-to-day life isn't there that realistic sculpture of a security guard that's in one of the corners there yeah yeah and being a security guard by a statue of a security guard i mean it's absurd as you can get also love they had one of the duchamp's valise in a box uh, yeah, yeah. exemplars there and i just always love the concept of of that series that he did I mean, they have a lovely collection there. A lot of great, like, impressionist and post-impressionist stuff now. And this beautiful modern art wing 
that I think is a real prize. This Noguchi sculpture garden. I mean, it was a it was interesting to work there, but you wouldn't want to work there uh, too long because it, it <laughs> you do get agitated. It's hard to zone out. I mean, some of the older guards they could do it, and it was almost like a prayer. Like they're like, I don't look at my watch. I walk in circles, and time just kind of slides away. <laughs> and that's what they—that's what they wanted, you know. And it, and that way, it was good. But it's a—it's a retreat there. Yeah, and there were times where you know I was sad, and and being around those works for a while gave me a lot of comfort and consolation. The Kemper has some really nice stuff over there. Yeah, that is a beautiful one too. I've sp- I've spent a good amount of time in there. As well, my family lives in Kansas City now, so whenever I see them, I haven't in a while just because of the virus. But those would be spots we'd hit up. Did you ever go to the Thomas Hart Benton house? I have not. No. Jackson Pollock painted the porch. That's one of its claims to fame. There. Whoa! I need to do that. Because is that? Uh, it's, where uh, is that exactly? Oh, it's uh it's not too far from the art school. Have I not seen that? It's, oh. it's, I think it's a national museum. I don't think it's a state museum. I think it's a national museum. That's very cool. And so you cool. can walk through the house, see some paintings he did for his family. There's one of uh, his wife, Rita. You can get her um, recipe. She is from Italy. And she had a, a pasta recipe that featured pork in it prominently. And he had a, a studio out back, and you can go walk into the studio. And it's uh, yeah, he's one of my favorite painters. So I was just, That's just amazing. so excited to get to go there. Right, because they had a, a, a pretty close relationship, if I remember correctly. Pollock broke Benton's heart by going abstract expressionist. Okay. Right, because Pollock was from Wyoming, is that right? Uh, I can't remember where. I just okay. know that he was teaching him, and then when he abandoned yeah. representationalist art, it really That's so interesting. messed up Benton. Talking about peregrinations, Muncie, yeah. Indiana, Manhattan, Kansas, Harvard, Michigan for your MFA. Yeah. How did you end up in Memphis? Yeah, so we were living in Boston, and my wife had sold her first book. It's called Dead Girls. It's a collection of essays. I mean, it's a, it's an amazing book. I know I'm biased, but it really is something. And so she sold that, and she got a visiting appointment at the University of Memphis, obviously here. So she went there while I finished up my MTS, and then I followed her down here. And then she got hired on in the long term, and so we are here. So I've, I've worked some strange little jobs here. I was waiter for a while and bartender. I quit that when the when the pandemic happened. So now I do some freelance stuff. I've taught a little bit here and there, you know, in an adjunct capacity, doing a little bit of that at Christian Brothers right now. But it is my first time living in the South, which has been really, really interesting. I mean, it was like exactly what I wanted <laughs> coming out of Boston. The people are just like so much friendlier. There's just a lot more kind of I don't know, soul, I guess. That sounds like, that's a cliche, but I think it is actually, there is something to it here. How does rural Kansas compare to the rural South for you? There's definitely some symmetry, but there is, I don't know, it's like, there's more similarity between like an Indiana and a Kansas than there is like, than Kansas and say like Tennessee, just in, in, you know, where I've been. And I, I think it is just this like kind of the culture of the South is so strong. It's there in food and music and drink and life. Whereas like Indiana and Kansas, there's just like a lot of the culture has been kind of chipped away a little more aggressively. You know, and I'm not saying that's not there. There are a lot of brilliant artists in all of those places, but there's just like more of a kind of like mainstreaming of culture. 
people are a little like they're not unfriendly in Indiana or Kansas. My best friends are are, are Kansans, but there is like that kind of midwestern passive aggressive thing. People are kind of outwardly friendly and and judgy and. And the South people will tell you, you know, their life story when you sit down or like you pass them on the street, they might tell you. And I, I really like that. I mean, for a writer, it's kind of a dream because you can just eavesdrop and you'll have little gems for dialogue forever. So COVID has probably put a dent in that gathering of wool there. Honestly, it's something I've been thinking about a lot. I'm working on this new project. I want to have like, I'm like, okay, I need to kind of finesse the dialogue. And I used to just kind of go over to other lands and listen in on people <laughs> and then you know you get those kind of weird non sequiturs and like strange asides i miss that but i might sneak over there at a distance and see what my ear can pick up but yeah that actually has hurt me a little bit <laughs> one of my favorite things I, I ever picked up i was at dfw getting onto a plane and there's this kind of texas business guy in front of me and he is talking to another fellow and he goes yeah we went on vacation down to puerto rica well that's good and uh, just hearing him say Puerto Rica instead of Puerto, Puerto Rica. Rica. And I just. Uh, You're like, have you? Did you hear anyone say it like that when you were down there? Like, <laughs> like, what were you doing? So the cover of the book itself has a very kind of 70s, early 70s feel to it. There's this white yeah, font on a black background and the primary color stained glass window. And I just thought that could have been like a, a book of the month selection back in like 1973. Hey, that would be great, right? <laughs> no, I really like the retro feel. And. You know, do you ever listen to uh, the Silver Jews, the the band? I've listened to them before, but it's been probably 15 years since I listened yeah, to no them. Yeah, no worries. They have this album, American Water. I kicked this image around a little bit, the cover for that, which is, you know, one of those kinds of like wily coyote roads with mountains in the background. But I sent that to the designer, you know, just early on when we were finessing an idea so there's a, that's kind of absorbed into that a little bit but yeah it does it does have that kind of like if you went to like burke's you know in midtown memphis or something and picked up an, a book from the 70s it might look kind of like this i'm proud of that I, I i love those those old school covers now that your book has finally been given birth how does it feel I mean, I, I could have been convinced it was kind of a long, good dream before the box of books showed up. It was, that was like things felt more real for some reason, just holding the physical books. But then you open it and you're like, it's like you're trying to like look at a picture made out of your own skin or something. Like It's like my eyes won't stick to it because I've looked at all of it so much just in writing it and editing it. But it's one of those things, I guess, when you like work on a project for a long time, it's really special to get to finish something and get to bring it to people. And I'm, I'm really excited for people to read it, you know, like any writer would be. Um, and already people have got their hands on some early copies. It's been really fun to hear what people have to say. How they judge or don't judge the narrator has been interesting to me. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with it. I know, it's, you know, maybe the via negativa is a good way for dealing with that, but it doesn't make for a good interview. <laughs> I'll have to say that um, when Clara, his friend in Seattle. Yeah, 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 exactly. When she confronts him and says, you know, if I just disappeared from your life, would it even affect you? And yeah. uh, I was going, this is kind of hitting hard here. Ouch. I know. Well, he he's one of those people who, and we all know them. It's like, I honestly think like mindfulness practice is especially important in these times. But there's a reason like a lot of the, the teachers that are really popular, like Joseph Goldstein or Jack Kornfield or Sharon Salzberg, you know, they're, they're not just telling you to go off by yourself forever. It's there to help you become a better person. And you need to have like good action in the world. 
you know, part of it is just like tuning yourself so that you can be better and act more ethically in life. But, you know, you see a lot of people who use it to kind of weaponize it to be more productive in a, in a kind of like Protestant work ethic sense. You know, meditate so then you can go back on your computer and program or meditate so you can, you know, go back to whatever gig you have and, and do more work. And you also see people who kind of weaponize it so that like they can detach from real accountability from really from like the needs of, of the people around them. And, you know, like any teacher, any, any real thinker is going to say like, you need to be good to other people. You need to have, find some, you know, even Richard Rohr, who is a very influential Franciscan writer out of New Mexico right now. It's like his, his center for, you know, prayer and kind of his hub is called the center for action and contemplation, right? They have to talk to one another. And Dan, our narrator, Father Dan, he's focused a lot on the contemplation. And, you know, when his friends need him, sometimes he's, he's a ghost. Yep. Identify. We all can, too. Like, I've been there. I definitely have. And so it, it was a way for me to kind of figure that out and figure out the kind of limits of that. Daniel Hornsby is the author of Via Negativa, which is published by Knopf. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is recorded in the studios of WYPL in Memphis, Tennessee. If you have any questions or comments, you can email us at wyplfm at gmail.com or write to us at Book Talk, care of WYPL, 3030 Poplar Avenue, Memphis, Tennessee, 38111, or call us at 901-415-2752. This recording of Book Talk is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 License for the United States. You are free to share, copy, distribute, or display and perform this work, but there are restrictions. Nothing in this license impairs or restricts WYPL's moral rights. Thank you for listening to Book Talk.